Hi, everyone. Joe, we're yeah. going to start with you. We're talking about the quest for human immortality at a tech conference. Okay, got it. Uh, <laughs> so how do advancements in health tech and medical research actually contribute to that quest, perhaps accelerate it? Yeah, so, so to back up, I think one of the, the big things I think about a lot is not just advancements in health tech, but in healthcare distribution. And that's really where technology is kind of making a big change. And like my, my example of this is heart disease, right? This like catches 30% of us. It's like the, the biggest killer in North America. And um, you know, the crazy thing about that is we know where it comes from causally, right? It's like cholesterol and time. And we're really fucking good at managing cholesterol, right, if we want to. So why are 30% of people dying of heart disease, right? This is a healthcare distribution problem, and it, it kind of ranges across income demographics. So technology allows us to reach people and distribute these healthcare, like the things we already know to prevent this age-related disease in ways we've never been able to before. Amal, what do you think there? <laughs> I thought people were here for an immortality talk, not like an exercise. Yeah, okay, right. Talk. So I'm, I'm boring. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll definitely get we'll to get, it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, I mean, um, we are, we stand at the precipice of enormous gains uh, that have been accelerating the last 10 or 15 years. It's unbelievable the things we can do with cells. There's a bunch of stuff in the labs. I mean, you sort of read about mice living twice as long and all that, and some of that stuff's like getting into human trials, and one of those might just work. I am like very, very, very optimistic about something this next decade, let's say, that resembles a general purpose longevity intervention, drug, medicine, something. And um, man, that's going to have a huge impact okay. on the world. So speaking of that impact, does that something have the potential to extend our lifespan to, let's say, 100, 120, perhaps even? Yeah, more? I think it's 100 now, actually. I mean, <laughs> I think the actuarial table will not say this, but I think most of us can probably expect to get closer to 100 than just to, let's say, 80. Lifespan doubled in the 100 years since 1900. It went from like 40-something to 80-something in the rich world in particular, and mainly that was just solving infections and childhood infections. But... Um, we're solving, like we're chiseling a bunch of other stuff away. But still for a long time, the oldest person has usually been around 120, and so there's this feeling that there's like a ceiling up there. But imagine living to 120 reliably. I mean, like we're seeing lots of people that are 85, 95, 100 years old, right? Like the presidents of all the different countries. And, um, <laughs> you know, getting, getting to the 110 or 120-year-old, it would be... But I think we may even crack that. We may crack that. But if we do, Joel, I want to bring in that conversation that we had backstage if we do live that long or longer than 120, talk to us about the, our susceptibility to age-related disease and how will that impact, uh, you know, living that long? Yeah, can I ask them all a question first? Absolutely, okay, please go about, ahead. Just about that what he not just said. Plan. So I'm curious, like, <laughs> Mal, let's say that we want to move this, like, if, this horizon of human age from 120 to 150, call it. What would you discount the probability that someone of the age in this room is going to make it to 150 at? Hmm. <laughs> Someone in this room, yeah, because like if it was a child, uh, I'd say the odds were great, but you guys are probably at least 20 years older <laughs> than a mere child. I think there's a real plausibility. I mean, that's what I mean about this, like there's this thing coming in this next decade, maybe two decades, and you know, as others have said, if you can just sort of keep the lights on with yourself and be around 20 years from now, you, you'll be there for that particular medicine, and I think we will crack the 120, for sure. I, I am very confident. Very confident, okay. Um, so... 
the way that we think about diseases of aging right now are we manage them to the point that like, they, they don't show up until we're old. You know, and so heart disease, I talked about it for a second. If I'm going to die at 85, getting some sort of heart disease at sort of 80, 83, that's, it's just like not that big of a problem. And this is where my doctor is managing me to right now. But if I truly believe that there's a way that I'm going to be able to live to 140 years old, and that's going to happen in my lifespan, I cannot manage my cholesterol to the point that I'm going to have heart disease at 83. It's no longer an acceptable level. And so I think this becomes really important to start to manage these diseases of aging so much more aggressively in a world where these innovations are around the corner. So in terms of managing the diseases, what role will personalized medicine have in that? I know you have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I, what, like, what we find just over and over is people just don't respond to the same things. And I, I don't know why, like, but here's an example. Is a few days ago, Stanford launched this study where they're trying to understand which people respond better to high-intensity interval training versus medium-intensity continuous training, right? And like, we know, we know at a population level, if you guys just fucking exercise, it's better, it's better, you should do that. But like, which is the best thing for you? We don't know that yet, and we really cannot clinically say it, and we're starting to understand that. But on a personalization level, you can already work with a great doctor to figure this out. Go do one of those training styles, see how it affects your blood markers, see what comes out of it. Change it up and try something new. And this is where personalized medicine and the ability to deliver this via technology can drive changes today. Amal, I want to bring you into the conversation yeah, here well, as well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I didn't really know a lot about personalized medicine until this last couple of years that we started our fund. And we've been investing in, you know, technology meets science, software meets biology. We're in the century of biology, but AI is going to make it all go faster. And, um, you know, it sounded like so boring personalized medicine. And, you know, part of it is just this, like, yeah, I mean, like, figure out what your levels are. How do you metabolize stuff? You might need more of this vitamin than that vitamin. It, it, everyone doesn't have the same recipe. And then some of it is really specific and totally mind-blowing. Like, one of the companies that we're investors in, they, use, they trained an AI model on 20,000 people that had some horrible cancer, a particular kind of tumor, and they followed the entire life cycle of those people, what treatments there were, all the different blood tests, the gene sequencing, the tumor sequences. Like, there's a lot of data when somebody is that sick, and if you follow a lot of them, you can train this model, and it is way better than the doctor at prescribing which treatment you should bet your life on. That is personalized medicine. I mean, there are incredible immunotherapy cancer treatments, but they only work for a third of people. You just don't know which third. Man, like that's personal. That's amazing. So in what ways can tech perhaps help contribute to the quest for human immortality? Yeah, well, tech, like probably a lot of people in this room are not, you know, MDs or... Who's an MD? Who's yeah. an MD? Raise your hands, please. Oh, thank God, Three there's people. only a few. <laughs> people. Okay, good. That's good. No one's going to call us out of our nonsense. We do have a yeah, okay. yeah. I, was, I thought we'd be outnumbered. Actually, we outnumbered them. Yeah. But, the, but, like, if you're not from the hardcore fields of, you know, you're not a biology PhD, well, how can you be involved? It turns out now that so much of the life sciences is computational. People are designing drugs, targeting drugs, accelerating clinical trials. They're designing the synthesis and the manufacturing. I mean, these are like enterprise software companies that people need to build to go accelerate innovation to accelerate the process of making all these discoveries and bringing them to market, and then also to accelerate the change of behavior. And I think that's one of the things. I mean, tech is really good at changing behavior. So accelerate innovation and accelerate adoption through behavior change. And I think that's what his company does, right, Joel? I mean, you're trying to make people, like, 
behave differently, like don't look at Instagram. <laughs> change their behavior, other. right? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. The change in behavior is, is so critical. And so I mean, what, we've do, what we do and what we've seen, because I think this is an interesting insight, is that every three months we do an in-depth blood test and put you with a doctor over a plan. And you know, what we've seen resoundingly is the healthcare system, such as it is, failing to change people's behaviors in ways that like, everyone knows they need to change. But just a cadence of delivery that keeps health top of mind, which is something that technology can, can help us deliver in a cost-effective way, suddenly causes people to change their behaviors in ways that they wouldn't if they visited their doctor like once every 18 months for seven minutes. Joel, I do want to follow up on that. Um, in terms of changing people's behaviors, how can we collaborate as between scientists and ethicists and philosophers in terms of um, contributing to perhaps responsible exploration of long longevity and uh, immortality in the future? <laughs> I mean, how many of you think it's a, it's a bad idea to help people live longer? Because that is what the entire... We also have yeah, well, we one person who think that. Yeah. Like, that is simply what medicine is. And yeah. radical longevity, which prompts some other feeling. But I think that it's the number one thing that everybody would like to do is simply live another day and live a little bit longer. It seems to me weird that it's an ethical question. And I'll let you answer the obvious ethical question maybe that is on people's minds, but come yeah. on, like why are we challenging the pursuit of happier and healthier life, you know? But do you really want to live forever? That is the question. Oh, I would like to, yeah. Yeah, forever, forever, <laughs> okay. I mean, okay, so like the very obvious ethical question here that you have to start with is equity of distribution. And the reality is that the way that things are trending right now, probably initially distribution will not be equitable. And that kind of comes down to the funding frameworks for getting there. Um, if you look at kind of some of these people who've tried to launch longevity studies, like the TAME trial even, it was rolling a massive boulder uphill to get these things funded. But you could definitely get people to engage in these things, which creates this kind of funding to, to, to do these experiments in a sense, right? Like if I get people to come to Life Force and say, hey, why don't you take some spermidine? There's no way anyone's ever gonna fund a longevity trial around that. Um, but if we're engaging you for 10 years and all of a sudden your biomarkers are better than someone else who didn't do that, hey, we've learned something. A and eventually, I think as people start to see these technologies become real, they will demand of their societies that they bring them to bear across populations. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't mean to make light of these important ethical issues, right? So one of them is certainly <laughs> about equity of access. Yeah. And in the history of, of medicine, you know, it seems to be that, you know, the rich get things first, but we have to work relentlessly to make sure they're as accessible as possible. There are a couple of other things that people sometimes worry about, like, do you want to live for a million years on an incubator feeling miserable and, and mm -hmm. terribly addled? I mean, I think that's a little bit also of a... Um, of a red herring, it, it, but, you know, we are living longer and we are living better. You know, today's like 80 is the past 60 and the past even before that's 40. I mean, if you, if, if people do live, health span has been improving along with lifespan, both together. And now let's hope that continues to be the case. I don't think anyone is an advocate for this kind of bizarro living in a jar, your brain kind of <laughs> on the life. I don't think that's, and then the third one, which I think is also unfortunately just a lack of information is people think that if longevity were to improve, we'd have overpopulation and environmental apocalypse. The oldest countries have declining populations like Japan and the French. And 
it's because of lots of things that you can inform yourself about, but like when you're not as worried about infant mortality, childhood mortality, et cetera, you invest a little bit more in a smaller population. And in fact, it, you end up with a more sustainable planet. I do want to talk about the risks associated with living lo longer, because there are some. Are there any? Do you think there are risks with being? Well, there's, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's like <laughs> Alive forever? There's like social upheaval ahead of us, you know, like if you had only planned your retirement account to get you to like 80, or I mean, how many times will you be married? Or how many generations of children will you be able to have? How well the oldest versus the youngest might be 40 years apart? There are so many things. I'm sure you get asked this too, right, Joel? Okay, so, I mean, I think mortgages are the funniest example of this, right? Because mortgages are like 25 years in Canada, 30 years in the United States. Why are they that length? Because that's how long we live. Right? That's how long you live from the moment you get to your mortgage to the moment you retire. And like, you, you start to pick this apart and there's all these weird social constructs that have to do the, with the fact that most humans are dying sort of around 80. And all of those things are going to have to change. And they will. They just will. Are mortgages just going to be 50 and 70 years from now? I, I don't know. This is not a question for me. I don't know. <laughs> I do want to ask you both a question. Are projects that focus on you know, uh, extending our lifespan, are they driven by ultimately vanity here, or is that more of a substantial value to our society as a whole? Yeah, there is this awkward thing where these like annoying bozo billionaires seem to be associated with these these, um, the longevity moonshots. I mean, you probably know about, you know, Bezos backing one and the Google founders backing another one. And then there's this guy from uh, Braintree who's like all over the internet all the time with his pictures of his like blood transfusions. And I mean, I guess it's like intense personal passion drives these guys to like do stuff and there's some self-interest there. But they are investing billions of dollars in fundamental research, cell research around the things that are going to end up benefiting a lot of us, things around methylation of the genome and reversing cellular aging and stem cells. And I mean, they are putting money into a thing that will, that will end up benefiting, I think, a lot of people. And there are other ways to waste money, I guess, big yachts and things Joel, that are not as good. What do you think? Vanity or substantial value? Um, I, I mean, if you just kind of think about the value that someone who is 60, has had, say, 40 years of career in their life, that much experience, who's still extremely high-functioning, can add to society? I mean, that's huge, right? Think about, think about the value that having grandparents in kids' lives adds for those children, right? This, like, generational experience benefits us socially in just all these kind of amazing ways. And to get more of that, yeah, let's, let's do it. Good. Um, we're at Collision, and I'm sure you all have been to a lot of panels where you hear a lot of talk about AI. I do want to bring that into a conversation here. Um, how can it contribute to advancements in terms of longevity research? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's actually why we started our venture fund. We um, are aware of dramatic progress in, in the life sciences, some of these things that we're referring to about, oh, we can make cells go backwards and all that. However, the, the, the really compelling thing for us was we are tech people. I've started a bunch of software and tech companies over the years. And it, it's, it's starting to be that, that biology is, is very computationally driven. So you can say to your you know, equivalent of ChatGPT for genomics, hey, can you design me a gene that'll like, make this thing stop happening? And it'll come and give you five or six recommendations. Be like, yeah, but which one is practical to do? And it'll give you much more. It, the, the, some of the things that 
we are already very familiar with in the mainstream world around how AI is useful, like you know, designing an image, well, designing a protein or having it match a certain target or tune or create hundreds of thousands of variations and then test them against hundreds of thousands of other filters and create the four that you should actually go into the laboratory with. These are computationally driven things that will dramatically reduce the, the time and energy required to find that next thing. A lot of organizations are already using this stuff. I mean, the moonshot of that like Moderna vaccine designed on a weekend three days after COVID was discovered, like that's real. Like someone did that on a laptop. Can you imagine like Jonas Salk 70 years ago? It was a completely different process. And um, that is going to become totally widespread in the field. So it'll have huge implications for health and wellness and longevity and, and other areas of biology, like food, agriculture, like it'll have big impacts on climate too. So it is a computational field. Joel, what are your thoughts on that? So um, my obsession is cost of delivery and how do we get cost of delivery of healthcare to the point that people can engage much more proactively more often. And, you know, you, Amal mentioned this, this AI that, that maybe you funded or I didn't catch that, but that was making kind of more accurate predictions than the doctor. And what we're going to see, which is amazing, is the marginal cost of an exceptional medical opinion is going to approach the cost of energy to drive that opinion through an algorithm. And that, that's going to be an absolute game changer in terms of cost of delivery and going to allow doctors to focus on being doctors and talking to people and the, the engagement that they can drive as a human being. And you know, the, a, change, a step change in the cost of delivery of medicine will change society. So, you know, really exciting. Speaking of changing society, I do want us to talk about the future where everybody lives much longer, perhaps forever. Um, what do you envision in the next five years in terms of breakthroughs and, and tech and when it comes to human longevity? Five years, and then we'll get to 10, and then 15 and 20. Yeah, people always get the timing on everything wrong. I mean, the stuff that we are like seeing people use right now, I guess in the coming five years, like everyone will see it. And these are examples th that Joel was giving, like um, an ECG, like when someone does an electrocardiogram, especially when it's like a bad situation, you're in the back of an ambulance or whatever. The person who's looking at that is not the world's number one expert on ECGs. They're not even in the top 1% of the city that they're in. It's usually the cardiologist who's like at home sleeping. And the person in the back of the ambulance is going to like try to make a quick judgment. Well, the robot's better. And the robot can live on your phone. And you just take a picture of the thing and it tells you what something, what an algorithm that outperforms the top cardiologists would recommend. Hey, watch out for this. And not only what's happening now, it'll predict what's happening tomorrow. Oh, you should actually go home, but you, you, we, de we definitely need to monitor you because maybe in two days something will happen. So ECGs, mental health and robots to talk with you, um, stuff around simply prescription refills or like what's the condition checking up, making sure you're compliant with taking drugs. Like these are all things that the robots are going to be able to help you do. Targeting very specific medicines, discovering them really early. Like these guys do all these blood tests regularly. Well, there's lots of stuff floating around in there. And it, like the big data crunch to figure out what predicts what we're the tools are there and we're like starting to discover lots of things. It's not just the boring stuff that your primary care doc asks you about, like, you know, your, your uh, cholesterol or whatever. There's much more richness available and these are predictors of things in the future and specifically actionable things that you might um, apply remedies for. I mean, so much. In the next five years, I think it'll be very common, all of these things. Joe? Yeah, so I, I think five years, like you said, time horizon's hard, but um, I think something that's very exciting right now that just we don't know the answer to is there's all these kind of novel biomarkers that are coming out that seem to be very tightly correlated to your age. But what we don't understand is just because it's correlated to your age, what does it mean in terms of your outcomes? 
Like, if, if methylation clock is this idea of, like, how your DNA is all folded up and it changes as you age, and it's very tightly correlated, and, like, people who are healthier seem to have better methylation clocks, but we don't know. And I think over the next five years, we'll start to know, and those things will become biomarkers we could target as we start to think about aging research. Because right now, if I want to run a study around aging, how on earth am I going to do that? Yeah, right? I, plan to, live, I plan to live doing? forever, and it's going fine so far. <laughs> Yeah. More or less. <laughs> right? Well, he's not dead yet. So. <laughs> so having some sort of reliable biomarkers we can target, I think that's going to start to come out and allow just a really rapid acceleration of study on these compounds and things that we can start to measure how they, how they impact our, our pace of aging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like type that into Google, biological age test. There's like a variety of things that people are offering. It's unclear which ones really are like definitive but but that but at some point one of the it'll be more valid and then we'll kind of know which things are sort of working and then we'll accelerate the ones that things that are working and let's see if we're around another hundred years from now um yeah Yeah. amal you plan to live forever i think we all got that um do you (laughs) do you actually think human immortality is attainable within the next 10 15 20 years (laughs) i mean i don't want to sound like a moron, so no, <laughs> I don't think that. But I do think we will have some very substantial breakthrough, like we were saying. Probably like, you know, like the kind of more out there folks um, who are really making big predictions, they assume immortality is like a digital thing, right? Like, get yourself uploaded. That all seems possible now, too. And, and the weird thing about that is you could probably train an AI to be like you, like now. Like, we're kind of getting started on that. And then you'd, and then you'd have two of you, maybe three you'd have your best friends. But so, yeah, I think that kind of immortality... <laughs> Depends if you like yourself that much. Do you want to have three of yourself or not? Um, <laughs> Joel, what do you think uh, in terms of attainability? Um, do I think that in the next 20 years, we are going to... There's like, you know, Amal and I were talking before this, and he described this little man that like runs around your body and like makes you older. And this is like somehow distinct from the aging-related diseases you have, right? It's like something going on. Like Whether you have type 2 diabetes or not, by the time you're 65, you kind of look the same, you've got more gray hairs. Like what's going on there, this like fundamental process of aging? I think in the next 20 years, we will absolutely be able to target that in some way and understand what the heck that little man is. I, if, if I sat in front of everyone and said, we're going to be immortal in 20 years, I also agree, I kind of sound like a moron. So but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Well, listen, that was a great discussion. A lot to think about for us in the future. Uh, hopefully, we will live a lot longer than 120 or maybe 150. Amal Sarva of Life Extension Ventures and Joel Jackson of Life Force. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Tremendously appreciate it. Thank you, it. you guys, yeah. too. Thanks, everyone.